You are listening to episode 344 of the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu. In this episode, we're going to run through some applications from the AP software series in the Slackware Linux distribution. We are starting with BPE. Oh, wait, before we start, I need to do an errata. There was a statement that I made, I think in the last episode, previous episode, saying that I couldn't imagine Chocolati existing five or even seven or even ten or even twelve years ago. Well, I need to broaden my imagination apparently because I got a a an email from Door to Door Geek saying Chocolati did exist five years ago. In fact, it existed nine years ago. Chocolati.org slash about. Chocolati was created by Rob Reynolds in 2011 with the simple goal of offering a universal package manager for Windows. Chocolati is an open source project that provides developers and admins alike a better way to manage Windows software. And the only reason I knew this before I searched it, I searched for it was because I brought it to a podcast eight years ago. Podnuts.com slash LFTROU 104. There you go. Thanks, Door to Door Geek. Uh, Door to Door Door Geek, if you don't know Door to Door Geek, dear listener, you should go check out the uh, podnuts.com website because it's an an amazing little network of of some really great shows. And uh, Door to Door Geek, I've been friends with him for uh, a long time now. And um, I I love that he still listens to the show. It's super, super flattering. And um, he's a wealth of knowledge, wealth of Linux knowledge. I've seen him talk at conferences, really, really sharp guy. Here he knew about Chocolati long before I did, which actually doesn't surprise me because I don't, I, I've never really delved that deeply into the Windows world. I feel like I'm delving deeper lately into the Windows world simply because Microsoft is talking so much about open source. So, and, and I'm, I'm certainly happy to support any open source, genuine open source project that Microsoft outputs. Like, you know, if, if they release something that is open source, then I'm, I'm happy to recognize that. It's, it's great that they do that. Now, a lot of times in their open source stuff, you might notice there's a little bit of extra stuff in there, right? There, are, maybe there's some, some tracking uh, stuff, so stuff that tracks the users, and, and maybe. Maybe that VS Code interface does look interesting, and it does say it's open source, but you look at it closer and you realize, oh, there's more than just open source here, actually. The official build of the Microsoft VS Code isn't all open source. There's some there's some special sauce in there. So if you want VS Code without the special Microsoft features, then you can get VS Codium. That's a great little project over at vscodium.io, I think. And uh, it's open source without all the tracking, without, without the tel- telemetry, as, as they say, or at least some of it. I think you still have to go through some, some process to get the thing to, to stop tracking you, I, I think. And either way, if you do that, you're, you, you lose some official functionality of VS Code itself, which kind of brings into question how, how open it was in the first place, because if you obviously can't... If you can't build the thing that they release, then that there is definitely a certain disconnect there. Either way, my point is, if Microsoft genuinely in- introduces something that is actually open source, I'm happy to support that and promote it. And and I'm I'm happy either way to talk about to talk to Microsoft Windows users about open source. Now that Microsoft is talking about open source themselves, because I feel like that's a great that's a great sort of inroad into their mindshare, um, meaning that we have a common language that we can talk now. Because previously, the concept of open source to a lot of people wasn't something that that was present in their mind. And I'm hoping that as Microsoft talks more about open source, that concept will get into their head. They'll think about it more. And when I talk to them about it, it won't be such a mystery as to what it is that I'm actually trying to say. We'll see whether that pans out or not. But thanks for the correction, Door to Door Geek. That was, um, it's great to know that Chocolati has been around that long. And I have to say, it is in a gr- it's, it's a great little project and it's in really good shape. Like if you go to the chocolati.org and look at their, rep- their little repository, they have really nice informative pages about each project. They tell you the source of it. Like is it an official Chocolati build or is it some other, is it someone else's build? Um, have there been any failures uh, within the build process? What does it depend upon? What does it imply? 
and so on. It's a really nice interface. I, I can't complain about the interface. It's it's as certainly as good as something like Koji for the Fedora project. It's it's a very nice, and I I think OpenSUSE has some really nice. They did some really nice um, sort of pages about the different RPMs that they distribute that you could really kind of dig deep and find out where all the all the stuff was from, which I think is important. I don't think it's a must-have because you know it's all presumably in like a spec file or something somewhere you can get to it but the easier it is to find i think the nicer the nicer it seems so it's almost like an online app store i guess but both both from a, a consumer and a developer or a user and developer angle it's got information for both so it is a very nice project i'm not surprised to hear that it's been around longer than i realized okay so now we should talk about bpe but i know it's only like six minutes in i, I want to take a coffee break I guess I won't. We'll talk about BPE now. We'll try to fit in a coffee break later. What is BPE? BPE is a binary patch editor. So it's a simple screen-oriented editor from, for, for searching and editing ordinary files in either ASCII or hexadecimal modes. So in episode 29 of season 13, I I covered Hexdump from Util Linux. If you're completely unfamiliar with with what a Hexdump is or or why you would look at a file and see hexadecimal and and how to navigate that you can you can learn a little bit more about it from that episode i will also link to a a, a somewhat useful article on the topic i don't know how how really useful it is but we'll say that it's useful it, it gives you some context and the reason i'm kind of uh, going back and forth on this i guess is because i'm i'm not i've i have no need to edit files or even to view files typically in hexadecimal mode so i i don't use hexdump i don't use bpe it's something that i'm familiar with mostly as a as a theoretical or or well i wouldn't say it's a theoretical because it's it's right here in front of me so i guess as a concept i'm familiar with it but for the life of me i i wouldn't know i, I can't imagine a time when i would need to be very familiar with this. Um, in, in case you're wondering, though, there is a time when one could need to be uh, familiar with this, and that is when uh, rescuing files. I might have mentioned this on episode 29 of season 13. I don't remember, but uh, when you're carving files out of a dead hard drive, using specifically a tool called Scalpel, a lot of that can go off of um, the the hex code imprint, shall we say, of the data on the hard drive. So essentially what, what I'm saying is that sometimes a hard drive loses track of files and and and, and certainly that will that could happen when a hard drive quote unquote dies. Um, one of the forms of death of a hard drive is that oops it forgets where all the inodes are it forgets where where all the data is or it's unable to access those things for whatever reason and there are several or two ways to um sort of deal with that in some cases i mean this is all very kind of hypothetical because it really depends well how did the hard drive die what's the cause of death what what do you need to actually is it recoverable at all? And if so, uh, it, does this happen to be a thing that you can do? So one of the things certainly is partition uh, management. Sometimes a partition will disappear. So to all intents and purposes, a hard drive appears to have died. But actually all that happened was that the partition map got erased. So essentially the hard drive's fine. It just doesn't know where anything's located. It doesn't even know sort of its own boundaries. So reapplying a partition map could solve that problem for you another problem sometimes is that yeah something something catastrophic has happened to the thing that tells the hard drive where to find files um you could almost think of it as a file map I, although i i have a i have a hunch that that's probably a real thing and it's not what i'm talking about but in other words the data is there but it just looks like a big pile of data it just like a big pile of bits and so the hard drive doesn't know one file from the other. And so if you use something like Scalpel, you can scan all those bits and you can kind of tell Scalpel to to carve out, to take the data 
that goes from from this header file, you know, from this string of hex dec hexadecimal numbers until that string, and we'll assume that's one file of a certain type. We may not know what the file is exactly, but we'll know that, for instance, a PNG, and and then you could carve out all the PNGs, for instance. So that's one reason you might need to actually know that hexadecimal data in files exists and how to view it. And one of the tools you could use for that is BPE. I don't know why BPE is on here and hex, hex dump is also on here. It's one of those places in Slackware where there's a little bit of redundancy. But um, to be fair, the interface is quite different. So I'm going to create a file, a dummy file here. And the way that I'm going to do that is with the convert command. Uh, and I'm just going to make a one pixel image. So convert, and I'm doing that because um, that way the, the imprint of that file, I keep saying imprint, maybe footprint would be a better term. The footprint of that file will be very small because it's going to have one pixel in it. And, and that's a lot easier to manage than something with two or eight or a million pixels in it. So we're doing convert dash size 1x1 and then we'll just call it canvas colon black and I will name this file pixel.png okay so that that exists now and if I do an ls dash I don't know lh on pixel.png it looks like it's 258 bytes. That seems pretty manageable. So now I'm going to go over to a terminal and I'm just going to type in bpe da uh, not dash uh, tilde slash pixel.png okay return and it sort of takes over my terminal window because this is a this is an application with a not not a GUI but a, I guess what they we call a TUI a terminal user interface or whatever that stands for, uh, TUI, um, and so so that means that you, you kind of get taken out of your prompt and dumped into this screen, an interactive screen. It's sort of like you see if you run Top or HTOP or uh, Wicked. A couple of applications have this model of kind of we're taking over your terminal and you can interact with it sort of like an application. Um, Oh, package tool too. That would be another good example. And apropos to Slackware. So anyway, um, we have um, we have a pixel here. We have home clatu pixel.png is the file that's open. You can open several files. Uh, this is a file one of one, and that's if I had given it more, then it would it would show me one of two or one of three or whatever. And then with F or I think P, you can go to the is it F or is it, uh, I'm going to hit question mark. No, it's N. Well, why would it be F? Uh, N as in next or P as in previous, or you can use the greater than or the less than symbol respectively to go to the next file or the previous file that doesn't really matter in this case because yeah, I only have one file. Okay, so um, there's also some paging functionality here. So you've got sort of a Let's see, a B or a G displays the first page, an E or a capital G displays the last page. You can go to the next page with lowercase n, previous page with uh, lowercase p. So I should, I guess I should have specified the n and the p for the next file or previous file is capital, so shift p, shift n. Okay, so that's that's kind of, that's, that's what we got here. So um, the, the point is that you see or the initial point, I guess, is that you see an array of the address space, the hex code, the hex numbers, hexadecimal numbers, and then the ASCII sort of, uh, I'll call it a translation of all of that. And I only call it a translation because I guess it's vaguely more recognizable to um, the, the human eye. So for instance, in address space 0x0, we have 8954E470D0A and 1A, so on. Now if, you, if, if you're very familiar with file headers, you may recognize 8954E470D as, as the PNG header numbers. 
And it, it seemed familiar to me when I first opened up the thing, probably, you know, from when I had looked at it with Hexdump. But something seemed off to me. And so I, I looked up the header numbers again at, uh, at libpng.org slash pub slash png slash spec slash 1.2 slash png-structure.html. And it, it, for whatever reason, I've probably said this all before on the show, but it, um, it, it gives the first eight bytes of a PNG file in decimal. So you have to convert those to hex yourself, which I don't really, I'm not very good at that myself. Um, but I do know that 137 in decimal is not 50 in hex, if you think about that, uh, that that wouldn't make sense. Turns out it's 89. 80, 80, is 50 in hex. 78 is 4e in hex, in hex, and so on. So the order of these of these numbers in BPE is what I think of as correct, and in hex dump, um, it's a little bit flip flopped. It's uh, if in fact I'll I'll do hex dump tilde slash pixel dot png fifty eighty nine forty seven four e so all the numbers are there but in terms of being a pair they are flopped the eighty nine comes after the fifty the four e comes after the forty seven and so on i do not know exactly why that is in hex dump i don't know why it does it differently you wouldn't you wouldn't think that it would do that it would have you wouldn't think that it would be possible to flip those around, um, but because they're numbers, right? I mean, and order matters, so that doesn't seem like that's something that should should be happening. And, and then I remembered that in hex dump there are a couple of different um, display modes in hex dump, and it turns out that dash dash canonical provides the uh, nearly an identical view as what I see in BPE. So for whatever reason, I, and I don't remember if I ever did find out the reason, but the dash dash canonical flag in Hexdump gives you the, uh, I, I don't know, the correct question mark order of these, of these, of these bytes. Um, and the first eight do indeed align with what the libpng.org specification says it should for a PNG file. And then if you look in the far right column, the ASCII column, you'll see that uh, just indeed the the first couple of letters of this file translate to, or, or yeah, they, they translate to PNG. So we have some good information, some useful information there. There's some data. At the tail end, there's a date stamp and then an end flag, and that's what we've got. That's the PNG file, the, the tiny little png file that we've generated that's what it looks like in hex so if you hit question mark you get your help page in within bpe and a lot of it has to do with searching for things so for instance if i'll just do q to get out of the help screen and then in no i don't want to quit probably shouldn't hit q huh um, and then i'll do a forward slash and it says okay we're searching through ascii now so if i type in png then it highlights the the PNG. You can do the same search with a uh, the the slash going the other way. I don't really remember what that is called. Was that a back backslash? Is that what that's called? Um, and you can look for a hex uh, hex string, and you can do a capital L to go to the last string. So I'll hit return to get out of the help page um, and then I'll do a backslash that's a quit uh, no I'll do a backslash I don't actually even know where the backslash is to be honest is it here yeah okay sorry 
um, PNG. Oh yeah, actually, so I should have mentioned this before I moved on. So if I do a if I do a backslash search for PNG in ASCII, it highlights it for me, but it also highlights the hex code from which that is derived, which I thought was pretty cool. And the same goes in reverse. So if I do the um, the the other the other way, the backslash, no, sorry, the forward slash. I don't know. You're gonna just have to play around with the slashes. I can never get the terminology for the two slashes correct. Um, seems seems like that shouldn't be that difficult actually. So forward slash is falling to the right, backslash is falling to the left. Okay. So um, if you do a backslash for your hex string search, you could type in, for instance, 8950 um, 4e 47, and it finds that string for me within the hex grid and highlights the section in the ASCII uh, column that corresponds with what I've searched for. So that, that that seems quite cool. So, you know, if you need to, I don't know, change a date or something, I guess you could go in, do a forward slash for your ASCII search, type in 2020. It locates the 2020 string for you in your ASCII column and in your hex column. And then you can hit either lowercase a to edit ASCII or lowercase h to edit in hex. I don't speak hex fluently, so I'm going to go ASCII. There, I hit ASCII. It takes me straight to the string that I want to, to, to change. And I'm going to type in uh, nine, 1999. So now I've just changed the date for this file to 1999. I'll hit Escape to exit out of the, out of the, um, out of the, the, the edit mode. And I've just edited the, really, the contents of that file, which is pretty crazy. It's kind of cool. Now, obviously, you could do, you, you wouldn't have, you don't have to just edit the, the date. I mean, you can edit anything, any part of that, any part of that file, you can edit. Um, I can just add random characters to the file. Hit escape, escape, uh, W to write, Q to quit, and now... Probably if I hit Gwyn view, if I open up uh, pixel.png in Gwyn view, I'll get an error. And it, it says that there is an error, but actually it still opens up. So that's interesting to know. That's very interesting to know that you can add all kinds of weird things into a PNG and not necessarily break the PNG. I mean, I guess I kind of knew that. Um, and with a one byte or a one pixel thing, I guess. I guess the expectation of what you're going to see is not that great, um, but certainly you could you could open up something more complex and get in there and, and muck around with the the hex or the ASCII and get all kinds of interesting glitchy effects. It, would it be something that you could do seriously, like you know productivity to be productive in some way? I don't know. I don't know how common it is to get in there and edit hex code in order to I don't know update the um, the the color um, the color tint of an image or 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 whatever but but there you go that is that's that's how to edit a png file for instance and there are lots of other file types you could edit it's a collection of data and now with bpe you can get in there and edit it really really easily the most complex thing about bpe is well aside aside from from finding a a use case for it which for me uh, there's just not there isn't one for me yet, at least right right now. I don't need this sort of functionality. So aside from that, the most complex thing, I guess, is knowing what to press. Um, so there's two help screens. You, you hit question mark to get into the first one, and then you hit question mark again to get into the second one. You can read the different file or the different operations available. So there are file operations, there are edit operations, there are paging operation, operations, and so on. So you kind of just have to get to know those, and I, I imagine that if you spend enough time in BPE, you would get 
used to them very, very quickly. And a lot of them do make a lot of sense. You know, P and N for previous and next, A to edit ASCII, H to edit hex, W to write, and so on. So a lot of them are pretty sensible. But um, yeah, it's a pretty pretty neat little application. I, I have to say that of all the hex editors that I have seen so far, and I think there have been maybe three, I would say that BPE is kind of the the friendliest. It's the one that's really easy to to start up and start using in a in a way that makes you think, oh, I have done something now. You know, something that actually has kind of an an obvious purpose. Whereas something like hex dump, which which really does, it just dumps the hex codes into your terminal. That that's a lot tougher to to kind of understand what you're supposed to do with it. Whereas BPE, you launch it, there's an interface, there's stuff to be done, there's there are menus, you know, I mean, they're a little bit hidden, but with key presses, you find them. So, yeah, I, I would say BPE is probably the, the way to go. If you're, if you're looking to get into hex editing and don't know where to start, that's a place that you could start. Um, we might as well really quick, like, look at just a a text file in BPE. So I've got a test.sh here that I created some time ago. And it's a small, tiny little shell script. And um, sure enough, in the far right corner, you see all characters in the in, in the file. It all sort of all clumped together, as you can imagine. Very, very difficult to to process, to parse, but it does exist, and it is really funny to to kind of imagine, I mean, you could actually edit a file in this. So if I hit, um, what is it, A, yep, for that. So instead of user bin bash, I'll make it say user bin tcsh, and then I'll hit escape to get out of the edit mode, W to write back to the file, and then I'll do a cat of test.sh, and sure enough, the first line of it, instead of hash bang, slash user slash bin slash bash it's now hash bang slash user slash bin slash tsh uh, tcsh which by the way isn't even the path of tcsh on my system so that would not go well but anyway that that's kind of a, an even easier way to get started with bpe i guess is just open up a text file and edit it and then look at your text file in some other familiar application and oh my gosh you see your changes and isn't that exciting and crazy so that's it's a neat one. I, I I'm gonna recommend messing around with BPE. It really is uh, kind of kind of fun. I mean, it's kind of fun for like three minutes. Time for a coffee break. is CD Paranoia, and I dug out a CD drive for this, which, I mean, I have, because I, I got a CD drive years and years ago. It's a little portable thing. It was literally $20, uh, and it, it, it has come in handy from time to time, uh, especially for independent artists. You know, many, many people are still using and releasing CDs, and here is one by a, gr a band called... Seth Frightening, The Prince and His Madness, SCR004. This is from sonorouscircle.com. I have no idea what I'm promoting right now. It is it is something that I found at, you know, probably at an art gallery or something. I don't know where I got it. I I personally like it a lot though, so um, I'm going to pop it into this drive. There it's spinning up. And in theory, we should be able to sort of interact with this from from a terminal. Let's do a man CD paranoia first, just to kind of do that due diligence of looking at the documentation. Okay, so CD paranoia retrieves audio tracks from CDDA 
capable CD-ROM drives. The data can be saved as a file or directed to standard output in WAVE or AIFFF form, uh, RAW or RAW format. Most Atopi or SCSI and several proprietary drives are supported, uh, but they have to support CDDA as well. Um, I, I'm pretty sure all modern CD drives use, uh, are CDDA capable. I don't remember. I, I, I don't. I think I feel like that's a sort of a restriction or a, some a, a clause that was kind of that kind of faded out eventually. Um, I could I could be wrong. I haven't looked into it. I mean I haven't really thought about CDs in ages. But um, so here's I, and I just grabbed this one because it's it is a CD like I say that I found somewhere and I don't remember where but I, I do like it and uh, I just I hadn't really gotten around to ripping it yet. And I've been meaning to rip it, so this is the perfect opportunity to get this into a digital format, because I, I don't tend to have any use for, for CDs these days. Okay, um, let's see. So the command syntax is CD paranoia, that's the command, and then some options, and then the span, you know, the tracks that we want to rip, oh, and timestamps, I think it has uh, an allowance for that, uh, and then optionally a a uh, output file. So we should be able to, for instance, just rip track one. So if I do CD paranoia and then uh, just the number one, let's see if it finds, oops, I misspelled paranoia. Let's see if it finds the drive. It sounds like it has found the CD drive and it looks like it's outputting to cdda.wave. Now as it rips the the audio from the from the disk and writes it out as a digital audio file on the hard drive, it gives me feedback uh, in the terminal. And they use emoticons, which I, I always thought was kind of clever. It is um, a precursor, in case you don't know, to emoji. So it was like a colon, dot, or dash, um, uh, closing parentheses to suggest a smiley face, or a, um, a number eight sign, dash x, for an aborted read due to un to known uncorrectable error, and so on. Uh, and when it's when it's finished, it gives you a big, big happy face with a colon, um, circumflex capital D. So it's a big smiling face. So that that's some of the feedback that it gives you. And there I've got the smiley face actually. So it's finished. So if I do a um, let's do a media info. That's not a command included on Slackware. That's um, that's from somewhere else. But media info cdda.wave, it reads that file and it tells me that it's 59.2 megabytes. It is 5 minutes and 52 seconds long, constant bit rate, and 44.1 kilohertz sample rate, 16-bit data, and so on. Two channels. So yeah, it seems to have worked. It seems to have worked perfectly. Now, I could do 1-2 um, to ri rip uh, track one and two, and then the cdda.wave file name would have been prefaced with track one cdda.wave, track two cdda.wave, and so on. If I want to do the whole disk together, I could have done cd paranoia dash dash batch, and that would have given me the the entire the entire disk. I did not want to do that right now because um, I don't want the thing to be ripping audio as I'm recording. I think that's a reasonable. Uh, precaution to take. You can also do, I'm going to do a CD paranoia dash dash query and notice that I'm not having to give it the the path to the drive and that's kind of nice. Um, and so CD paranoia dash dash query or just dash capital Q if you prefer uh, gives you a table of contents of the disk and this is only telling you about audio tracks that's what CD paranoia does and it, it it gives you a nice little summary, really. Uh, table of tracks, so 1 through 12. It looks like there are 12 tracks on here, which, uh, frankly, I didn't know. Uh, it looks like there's some writing on the back of this thing, but it's all kind of... He, they, don't, they don't put track numbers. They just give the track names. So I guess maybe if I had really worked at it, I could have figured out which is which. But, yeah, so it's telling me that there are 12 tracks. So that's quite useful. It t gives me the times, the time, the length of each track, the beginning mark of each track, uh, whether it can be copied, I guess, and then the channels, and so on. So it gives me a, a healthy amount of data there. If, if for some reason I knew that I wanted, I don't know, just 
just the middle track or something like that, I could find out what that was. Or, or maybe the last track. Maybe I just want the last track, but I'm not clear on how many tracks there are. Do a query, you can find it, and then you can say, okay, CD Paranoia 12, and then it would just rip that last track. So I'm going to trash CDDA.wave for now. That was CD Paranoia. The next one on our list is CDRDAO. And that is a program to copy. So it reads and writes CDs in disk at once mode. So I don't, I honestly do not have a need for this, and I am very tempted to not discuss it for, for at all. But I, I want to discuss it a little bit because, if nothing else, this is an interesting historical note. So there are CDs out there, there are albums out there that sort of have no break between the songs. It's just an endless flow of, of sonic experience. And on CDs, they're able to do that, but also insert sort of uh, almost p just purely metadata bookmarks, you know, just the, something that doesn't inter interrupt the sound or anything, but you've still got a track marker there. CDRDAO is something that can reproduce that from one disc to another. Now, I haven't used CDRDAO directly myself, so I don't know if that's something that maybe I used um, in, in, as, a, as a support application in another application that I have used. I'm not sure. I've never had a problem with this. The, the, the problem that this is saying that it solves is not a problem I've ever had. So I don't know how... I don't know if this is just really old technology that I'm taking for granted, or whether this is something that is only possible because I have CDR DAO. I'm just not, I'm not entirely sure. Now, what I do know is what the man page tells me, and that is that, oops, uh, that is here, CDR DAO uh, creates audio and data CDRs in a disk at once mode, driven by a description file called toc-file. So that's table of contents-file, toc-file. It's possible to create non-standard track pre-gaps that have other length, other, uh, other length than two seconds and contain non-zero audio data. Okay, that's technical stuff that we don't care about right now. So what we can do, just to kind of get a feel for how this all works, is we can do CDRDAO and then read READ-TOC. And that should analyze each track of the inserted CD. Got that and create a toc-file that can be used to make a more or less exact copy of the CD. This command does not read out the audio or data tracks. Use read-cd for this purpose. So read-cd is a sort of a subcommand of, of CDRDAO, just like read-toc is, except that it copies all tracks of the inserted CD to an image file and creates a corresponding toc file. The name of the image file defaults to data.bin, if no dash dash data file option is given. Okay, so in other words, what we can do, and I'm not going to do this right now. Um, I will, I'm gonna hit return on read dash toc. Uh, I, I happen to know that that actually does take a while, so I don't even know if it'll finish the um, the process before I, before I move on, but um, I'm gonna do that. So CDR DAO space read dash toc space and then some output file. So I'll just do test.toc. Uh, it, it immediately, almost immediately spits out the, the table of content data. So the, the stuff that I got from CDR or CD Paranoia. I got the track listing. I got the mode that the track is in, which is uh, audio. Uh, there are two flags. I don't know what that represents. Start and length is, is provided here as well. And uh, it says that, yes, the... Audio track reading is supported by this drive. The data format is BCD, and it gives me a bunch of um, of data about what it's doing. And right now, it's analyzing track zero one, starting at zero 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 length o five fifty two zero zero. So that's that's working. It's it's scanning. It is reading the TOC, I guess, and it's writing it out to something. Um, and like I say, I, I have a feeling this is going to take a long time, so I'm probably not going to let it finish. But the the other um, options have have, prevent, have, have pre presented themselves as, for instance, read-cd to copy the the tracks and dump it into a file, and read cddb, which is to try to actually get the artists and track names from the CD, the, the big CD database uh, thing that that, it, that that the internet has um, sorted out. 
uh, let's see, it's show, show data, read test, disk info, and so on. So yeah, none of that's really all that interesting, but the the two, the, I guess the three, once again, the, the way that I think about it is that, well, you're going to want to see what you're doing, so you're going to probably read dash TOC. And then you're going to want to actually do the thing, which would be read dash CD, and that's going to create the local image file for you. Then you're going to take your CD out of the drive, put your blank one in that you're going to copy that data back to, and then you're going to do the write, W-R-I-T-E pointing it to the TOC file that you created, the TOC and the image file that you created in the other in the other ones. Now, all of that can be done with one command called copy. So if you just want to do the, the everything that I've just described, you can do um, CDR, DAO, copy, and it performs all the steps required to copy a CD. You do need a device containing your source CD first, which you can specify with dash dash source dash device, and then you need a device to record the data from, or uh, record the data to, you know, the one that's going to be writing the, the disk, and that you use, you, you use the option dash dash device. What if you don't have two drives? Well, if you don't have two drives, then you can do um, you can do a single, you know, you can just use the dash dash device option to show it where where to write to, and then CDRDAO will prompt you to insert, you know, it, it knows that you're using one a, a device, so it'll it'll prompt you to swap out the disks when it's ready to start writing. So there you go. There are other options to control, for instance, the speed at which you write. That used to be a, a big deal. There were there were things where you actually, um, if you if you made a mistake, or or rather, if you burned too fast, the CD the CD recorder might make a mistake and screw up your your your, your copy operation. It was really annoying. This was a long time ago. I don't think it's really a thing anymore, but it 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 has it used to be a thing. Uh, and you can eject too. Let's try that. Let's give that one a go. CDR DAO dash dash eject did not work. Did not actually work. I guess it may be the eject. Yep, it's after reading and writing, or rather writing. It is after writing it can eject. So I don't get the just eject. And there's, I don't, I guess I don't have an eject command anymore. I used to have an eject command uh, for, for on computers that would eject the, the disk. Um, so anyway, it's done reading the TOC data. And if I do a file on TOC dot, no, I did test dot TOC. It tells me that it's ASCII text, so if I look at test.toc, I'm not looking at it in BPE, uh, it's sort of a, let's call it a JSON-like format with some really interesting data, actually. Uh, it shows you, it shows me the, the, tra the, the track titles. It's got some value for a performer, although it's nothing that I recognize. Uh, and it gives kind of like the files that would be that would be created from the from the from the process um so yeah kind of it kind of shows you some interesting some interesting data that i didn't really necessarily think it would have access to so that was that, that's interesting um but yeah probably nothing that i'm going to do anytime soon to be honest um, but that's cdr dao and and i'm sure at one point this was a really important and exciting application for people. Okay, next episode we're going to we're going to um, talk about CDR tools. There's a bunch of different ones in the in the in the package CDR tools. There's like let's call it eight different binaries. Could be less. Could be a couple more. Um, I don't know how useful any of them are. It might be a, another CD paranoia CDR DAO kind of situation. I know there's one in there that's a firmware flasher for a specific kind of of CD utility or CD drive. So that's that's definitely not going to get a, get a lot of coverage from me cuz I I'm pretty sure I probably don't have that drive. Um, but it's still it's you know, it is part of the Slackware distribution. It is a part of computer computer history now. And it's kind of interesting that just within the lifespan of Slackware 14.2, that history has become I mean, it really has become history. I mean, admittedly, there, there, you could probably start to argue that even when Slackware 14.2 came out, CDs were on the way out. Uh, absolutely, you could argue that. I mean, you could probably argue that 
back in the early 2000s that CDs were on the way out because, you know, whenever MP3 hit, an astute person probably knew, well, CDs are on the way out. And I don't know how many people ever thought that CDs were around to stay forever. I know I didn't. I wasn't. I was very disenchanted by CDs. They were exciting because they were a media that both the content creators and the content consumers actually shared. So before CDs, for instance, you had, well, you had audio tapes, right? The the old style, you know, 1980s cassette tapes, and, and those are kind of cool because both consumer and producer could could use those. But they weren't great in quality. I mean, they're, they're really just not. The noise-to-signal ratio is not good on those cassette tapes. And so they weren't optimal quality. They were convenient because everyone could record to them. Unlike on vinyl, you, you, you don't usually find... You, you don't really have like a, a, a hobbyist-oriented vinyl imprint machine. You know, you, you'd have to... I don't know how you would produce your own vinyls if you're an indie artist. I mean, I'm sure there's a way. I just don't know how to do it. CDs were a different story. So actually, between those t- the CDs and the cassette tapes, there were th- these things called DAT tapes, digital audio tapes. And they were exciting because the signal-to-noise ratio was great. They, they leveraged digital digital audio really, really well. It was basically a hard drive in tape form. So they were fantastic, and you could get them as a hobbyist musician. You could record stuff to them. It sounded amazing. But then what do you put it out to? To get people to hear it, you'd have to put it back out to an audio, like a cassette tape, which you're just you're reducing quality from right out of the gate. So CDs were exciting because you could you could produce them at home and you and the people you wanted to listen to them actually could use the thing that you were producing. So that was that was an exciting innovation and kind of for the time a really great thing for for distribution. But I don't feel like, at least I never fell for the idea that CDs were were by any means somehow permanent. You know, I mean, and there used to be ads in, in magazines and in computer and music magazines about how, how CDs were going to be long-term storage. I mean, that, that was it. The CDs were the things that were going to be around forever because they're just so, so hearty and so indestructible. Uh, and of course, th- that was never true. Um, and and now they're gone, basically. They're pretty much gone. And and yeah, I don't miss them. I'm glad that they're gone. And um, I don't I don't imagine people will have all that much nostalgia about them. Maybe people will, but um, they, they you know they don't really have like a characteristic sound. For instance, I mean they're they're kind of clunky. They always were. They were prone to skipping. Not not very great. So I'm I'm glad that they're gone. I'm glad that we no longer really need CDR paranoia or CDR DAO or CDR tools for that matter. And I think the fact that there are so many tools kind of having to deal with CDs is kind of an, it's indicative I think of of that technology. It wasn't perfect technology. It was a little bit on the proprietary side here and there. You know, you had things like well, you have this drive now. Is it CDDA capable or did the manufacturer cut that feature out for no good reason uh you have these these cds is it in good quality is it in good shape or do we need to run cd paranoia on it to get past any errors that are happening on the disc i mean that's a bad sign when when one of the primary ripping tools for the media is called cd paranoia because everyone knows that well the data could be a little bit scrambly or the, the service could be so scratched that the laser gets confused and so on so not a good sign and you know i'm not one of those people who who has the illusion that just because you physically own something you actually have license to that thing uh i think i feel like some people get bogged down on that like well i don't like digital files because there's no thing that i get it's just a digital file and well i mean that that's no different than a cd right i mean you get a digital file it's just on a physical device and that doesn't mean that you can then do anything with that forever you're still just licensing it from the author as you know in the way that everything's set up now that's unless it's creative commons you're you're well even and if it is creative commons you are licensing it from the creator so it's it's not like you're owning a thing on in one scenario and not owning it in the other scenario you don't own it in either scenario you're licensing it from the the content creator and yeah i don't i don't see the advantage to cd's personally so there you go that's my opinion on cd's next episode or or 
the next time we look at, at this stuff, we will look at CDR tools. We'll look at, uh, that'll be the last of the CD stuff. And we'll do CG Manager, which is uh, for container stuff, uh, or C groups, I guess, technically. Uh, and then what is the other one? Um, Cups, the common Unix printing system. That's always a fun topic. Hey, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. talk like me and talk this way all the time, then everybody you meet will be your friend. <laughs>